The following sermon was preached by me, Jeremiah Cox, at the Elm Street Church of Christ in El Reno, Oklahoma. It is my prayer that you are edified by this study, and I encourage you to test all things by the Word of God. Welcome back again to the Facebook live stream of our sermons this morning. We're going to be studying in a few seconds um, from 1 John chapter 2. You might turn there. Um, we'll start there this morning. Uh, before we get into the lesson, I did want to apologize. I was notified that on some devices, um, the sound was a little faint. I had adjusted some of the sound on the program I'm using to uh, cut out a little bit of noise from the microphone. And, and yesterday, I tested it about half a dozen times and put it up onto my TV, tested it from my laptop, and tested it from my phone. And it seemed if I turned the volume all the way up on my phone that I could hear it loud and clear. Um, but I didn't test the iPad and a tablet, which don't usually have as good speakers. Um, so if that's what you're using, I apologize. I turned the volume up a little bit. I hope it's um, easier to hear now. I hope that it wasn't so faint that you couldn't follow along at all um, this last lesson. Um, and if it was, I, I apologize. This is, again, something new, and I'm going to be uh, trying to, to make some changes and and better the stream and better the sound and better the video and all of those kinds of things. I certainly don't want to hinder uh, the preaching of the Word of God, so I hope you're going to be able to hear better this time and follow along, and I hope that this study will be a benefit to you as well. Well, it's 1031, so we're going to go ahead and, and get started with the lesson this morning, the second lesson which again will be from 1 John chapter 2 and verse 6, and we'll get to that verse in a little while. I want us to consider that man is obviously created to serve God, to fear God and keep his commandments. And so with any given man, his greatest focus, his primary focus, should be about how to serve God, or you might say the theory of serving God. But then he needs to understand that theory must be put into practice for it to mean anything. Consider this idea of theory and practice. As defined by the New Oxford American Dictionary, theory is a set of principles on which the practice of an activity is based. And so if we're created to serve God and that's our primary focus, then we need to understand the set of principles on which serving God is based. How do you serve God, in other words? But then practice is defined in the same source as the actual application or use of an idea, belief, or method, as opposed to theories relating to it. And so here's this action. We want to serve God, but we need to understand the principles of serving God. But we not only need to know the principles of serving God, but we need to implement those principles in our life. We need to be actively serving God. That's why it's important to study His Word, to rightly divide the Word of truth, to present ourselves approved to God. That's why Paul gave that instruction to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2 and verse 15. We've got to come to know the principles, and then we've got to be able to be willing to apply those principles to our life of service to God. I'll give you an example of theory and practice. Consider that a farmer needs to know the theory of agriculture or farming, if you will. He needs to know when to plant, and that according to what he's planning. He needs to know 
where to plant what he's planting. He may be in the wrong region in order to grow that particular crop, and he either needs to choose another crop or he needs to move. He needs to know after he plants that how to nurture that crop. He needs to know how much water it requires or what kind of fertilizer it requires or are there any chemicals to get bugs away that it requires. He needs to also know how to harvest. How are you going to harvest what you've planted? What's the most expedient way? What's going to make it faster? And what's going to get everything you need? He needs to know the theory. But a farmer can know exactly what it takes to to be a farmer and to to be successful in regard to planting and growing and harvesting and then and then selling in the market even. But he's got to be willing to have the work ethic. He's got to get up before the dawn of day and he needs to to get out there and he needs to sweat and work and, and labor because without that effort and practice, the theory means nothing. It's just a theory. And so those principles must be put into practice. I think another obvious example would be that of a doctor, a medical doctor. The medical doctor needs to have gone through medical school. He needs to study medicine. He needs to study the human body. He needs to know anatomy and physiology and know how that medicine reacts to the human body. Whether it's a good thing to take it here or whether it's a a good thing to take it here, he needs to know how the body works. But you can have an individual go throughout medical school and and ace every single test and and be book book smart about uh, medicine and, and the human body. But then if he isn't willing to practice those methods and those principles, put them into practice and hone in those skills, then he's not going to be able to be an effective doctor. The theory of medicine and the theory of of the human body and how it functions only goes as far for a medical doctor as his practice and his skill and his willingness to hone in those skills, if you will. And so theory is very important with anything, but it's also necessary that practice follows that theory, that those principles are implemented. Now, going back to spiritual things, I understand that anyone who has a familiarity with the New Testament, anyone who has a familiarity with Christianity, anyone who's spiritually minded and wants to serve the one and only true God of the Bible, they understand, insofar as the New Testament is concerned, that the people of God that are serving Him and the people of God that are right with God are in the location of Christ. In Ephesians 1 and verse 3, Paul writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love. And so you've got to be in Christ, <coughs> excuse me, to be a child of God. You've, you've got to be in that place the Scripture identifies, and that is in the body of Christ. And I think that really, even those in the de- denominations, everybody who claims to be a, a Christian, whether they actually are or not, that they know that the people of God and the people who are serving God are in the location of Christ. But here's the thing. Many will attest to this fact, but they won't give the due diligence to discover the set of biblical principles or the theory on which the practice of abiding in Christ is based. 
They say, yes, you need to be in Christ, but then they don't discover how to be in Christ according to the standard that is set in Scripture. But then there are some who they will study out the theory of abiding in Christ. What are the set of principles on which one will abide in Christ? And they'll study that and they'll come to know it without a doubt that this is how one abides in Christ. But then those who have come to know the set of biblical principles sometimes do not make the actual application of the principles. They don't practice the theory. And in those situations, both fall short. And so let us consider the Bible theory of abiding in Him, that is, abiding in Christ. 1 John 2 and verse 6 says, He who says he abides in Him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. The theory is abiding in Christ. That is the activity, that is the action that we are speaking of, but we need to know the biblical principles on which that action is based. And knowing that theory, we need to then follow it and put it into practice, or else we're not abiding in Christ. Consider that. He himself ought himself also to walk just as he walked. Firstly, note what the Apostle John says by inspiration. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. The theory is abiding in Christ, and here is the set of principles by which that occurs. He himself ought himself also walk just as he walked. Ought speaks to being under obligation. And that needs to be understood in order to abide in Christ. You ought to do something. You're under an obligation. There's a lot of people in the world who would suggest the exact opposite. We have no obligations. There's nothing that we as man are supposed to do. We're not under obligation. But that's contrary to the theory that is expressed by the Holy Spirit in 1 John 2 and verse 6, that you ought. You're under an obligation. Consider what the King James Version of Ecclesiastes 12 and verse 13 says. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Duty speaks to an obligation. Man has a duty. In order to abide in Christ, you ought. You have an obligation. And just the fact that we have fallen short of that obligation, Romans 3.23 says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, that doesn't mean that that obligation is all of a sudden erased. I think that that's the way some people in the world think. That we can't do anything in order to have salvation. And what that's essentially saying is that our sin at the beginning of our lives, or our sin, that first sin, it erased obligation. It erased responsibility. Where you had an obligation, you failed. Now it's all up to God. It's all up to God. And I'm not denying that it is up to God. God God has to save us. We need saving. It's not of ourselves. It is the gift of God. But also, it's very clear in the Scripture that we still have an obligation and there are conditions to meet. And really, when it comes down to it, God saves us to set us back on the path that we fell off of in the first place. The path of our obligation, our duty. In Ephesians 2 and verse 10, Paul explains that we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. We ought that's our obligation, good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Consider that we ought because man is under a universal authority. That is the authority of Christ. In Matthew 28 and verse 18, Jesus said to the people, 
All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. To be under authority is to be under obligation. It's not that everyone is fulfilling their obligation, but everyone is certainly obliged to follow the authority and submit to the authority of Christ. We ought. You know, that was the same thing in Acts, the second chapter, when the first gospel sermon is recorded for us. Remember the conclusion of Peter's sermon in Acts 2 and verse 34? He said, For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, <coughs> He says himself, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. That's authority. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord, authority, and Christ. Essentially, what Peter concluded his sermon with is an ought. You ought. You're under obligation. You murdered him, and he's, he's ascended to the right hand of the throne of God. He's king. He's the all authority that is in heaven and on earth. And you, being in, on earth, you're part of this universal. You ought. And then they understood they ought. That's why they said, when it, they heard this, it was they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? They knew they ought. They just didn't know what they ought. And that's why Peter said, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Understand that in order to abide in Christ, we ought. The Bible speaks of two ways. There is the narrow way and there is the wide way. But wide is the gate and broad is the way which leads to destruction and many go in by it. But narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life and there are few who find it. And Jesus narrows that way in John 14 and verse 6 by saying, I am the way and no one comes to the Father except through me. There is but two ways to go, but to reach God you ought to go the one way. But I want us to be impressed by the fact that he doesn't just say he ought, but he ought himself also to walk just as he walked. Yes, we're under obligation. We ought, but himself personalizes that obligation. In other words, each individual is responsible for their own obligation. I cannot fulfill your obligation for you, and you cannot fulfill my obligation for me. You ought, and I ought, the person who abides in Christ ought himself walk as he walked. In Galatians, the sixth chapter, in verse 5, the Apostle Paul said, For each one shall bear his own load. If we're familiar with the context in verse 2, there seems to be a contradiction. He says, Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. But then he goes on to say, For each shall bear his own load. We know that that's not a contradiction, being familiar with the text. There are certainly things that are burdens to us, struggles and, and adversities that we can help each other with, such as sorrow and other matters. But then there are obligations that no one can help us with. We've got to fulfill our own obligation. That word burden in verse 2 of Galatians chapter 6 is the Greek word baros. And Art Ginger says it's an experience of something that is particularly oppressive, a burden, and we can help each other with that. But then he says each shall bear his own load in verse 5, and that's the Greek word forshin. And Strong defines that as an invoice, as part of freight, that is figuratively a task or service. And so it's a, it's a task that we are burdened with. That's why Jesus in Matthew 11 and verse 30 used that word fortune saying, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Your responsibility, your obligation, it's personalized. That's not fulfilled 
by someone else doing something. We've got to understand that each man individually will be judged based on whether he has fulfilled his obligation. Abiding in Christ, you ought himself walk as he walked. Back in Ecclesiastes 12 and verse 13, we know that the whole of man, the duty of man is to fear God and keep his commandments. But he goes on to elaborate that that is a personal obligation. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. And that judgment is on an individual level. The Apostle Paul bears that out by inspiration in Romans, the second chapter, and in verse 6, when he says, God will render to each one according to his deeds. That's singularity. That's personalization. It's your deeds that are going to be judged. You're not going to be judged based on my deeds, and I'm not going to be judged based on your deeds, and and none of us are going to be judged based on the group deeds in, in, in the most simplistic way. But what have you done? Or what haven't you done? And that judgment is individual, but it's also without partiality. In verse 11 in Romans 2, there is no partiality with God. This is why Paul made it a point in Philippians, the second chapter, in verse 12, as he said, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And we should have fear and trembling in the sense of understanding the gravity of the situation, that it's my salvation that hangs in the balance. Am I going to spend eternity in heaven with God, or I'm going to be separated from him for eternity in hellfire? What's it going to be? That's only my decision. God's offered me everything that he needed to offer me. And it is entirely up to me on whether I go to heaven. I make the choice. It is my obligation. And this is why we need to be given to constant introspection. In 2 Corinthians 13 and verse 5, Paul says, Examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you are disqualified. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. But notice also what he says. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. What this does also to walk is it connects the statement of the theory. Remember theory and practice? It connects the statement of the theory of abiding in him. He who says he abides in him. And it connects that theory and that statement of the theory with the obligation in action. And so it's not enough to just say, I abide in him, but you also have to walk. You've got to do something. You've got to put this theory into practice or else it's just a theory. And it does you no good. It does no one any good. And it certainly does not please God. He himself, also, he himself ought to walk just as he walked. Consider that James 1 addresses this concept that the theory of, of obeying God and following God and being approved of God, it doesn't just need to be heard. It certainly does. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. But it doesn't just need to be heard. It needs to be applied in order to be advantageous. In James 1 and verse 22, James writes, But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Many people deceive themselves when they come to know the theory of abiding in Christ. They come to know the theory of salvation. The gospel of Christ is the power of God to salvation. That's a theory. 
But if they don't know the exact principles of that theory and then apply it, it does nothing for them. They deceive themselves by just hearing it. He says, if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror, for he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it, and is not a forgetful hearer of the, of the word, but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. The one who is blessed is not the one who just hears, but he's the one who looks into the law of liberty. And just like a man observing his natural face in the mirror, he's able to see, am I right or am I wrong? Is there something on my person that needs to be corrected? And so here's the principles. Okay, I heard it, I understand it, but then he walks away and doesn't do anything. That man is simply a hearer and not a doer of the work. The theory must be carried out in practice or else it does not benefit. And James continues in chapter 2 to kind of elaborate on that. Faith must be shown with works or else the faith is incomplete and therefore it's dead, not having works alongside it. But consider this idea of faith. It comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And we've established that the Bible is very clear about the fact that those who serve God are God's children and are pleasing to God are those who abide in Christ. And so this statement of 1 John chapter 2 and verse 6, he who says he abides in him is a statement of faith. I abide in him. That's a statement of faith. But if that statement of faith is without the actual practice of the theory of abiding in him, then it's not good at all for that person. It avails nothing. In James 2 and verse 14, James explains, What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And he explains furthermore why in verse 26, For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. And so this idea of seeing a brother or sister naked and destitute of daily food, that, that's this understanding that we have an ought, we have an obligation. Namely, to love your neighbor as yourself, to show love to your brother by caring for them. But if you just make a statement of faith that I, I believe that you can depart and peace be warmed and filled because God's going to take care of this, but then you don't apply the principles of that theory in practice, which essentially states God's going to use you to alleviate the pain of your brother, then it does nothing. Faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. You see, it's not enough to just acknowledge that we have an obligation, but then we've got to act on that acknowledgement and carry out our obligation. This is what Jesus was talking about in Luke 6 and verse 46 when he says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things which I say? Calling him Lord is an acknowledgement verbally that I ought, that I have an obligation. But then if you don't do the things which I say, that theory is not being carried out in practice, and it does us no good. In the same consideration, in Matthew 7, Jesus elaborates on that particular instance. In verse 21, he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So here's some people that more specifically understand the theory of needing to serve God. And they may have even looked through some principles, 
but then they applied what they wanted to apply, they didn't apply what they didn't want to apply, or they just completely altered that particular principle. And they offered up things that God had not commanded them. They worked lawlessness. And because their theory that they came to an understanding of was not applied in practice, Jesus said, depart from me. There's one other thing to note about this phrase in 1 John 2 and verse 6. Also, to walk in the Greek is a present active verb. He doesn't say that ought himself also to have walked at one point in time, where, where you do a little bit and that's enough. He says he ought himself also to walk. It's a continuation. It's a present matter. It's an active matter. This is a lifelong commitment. If you're going to abide in Christ, you don't just abide in him for a little while and that's enough. You abide in him continually throughout your life. It's a present active verb. Consider in Hebrews, the fourth chapter in verse nine, the Hebrew writer addresses these Hebrews like we studied just a little while ago about how they were slacking off and they were slouching toward apostasy and, and they weren't being faithful anymore. And, and they, they seem to have started to rest before they even reached the goal of heaven. And he warned them. He said in Hebrews 4 and verse 9, There remains therefore a rest for the people of God, for he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. And then he goes on to say, Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. In other words, you're resting before it's time to rest. You don't get to stop working until you reach the end goal. You finish that race we're trying to endure. It is a present and active thing. We can learn a lot from the Lord in this regard. In John 9 and verse 4, Jesus himself said, I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the, in the world, I am the light of the world. As long as we're in the world, we ought to be working. We ought to be walking. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. But the theory and the principles involved in it continue. Because he says he, says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked just as restricts the obligation of walking to a specific standard. You ought, there's an obligation. That obligation is personalized. You ought himself. That obligation is a present active thing, but there is a specific way. Ought himself also to walk just as he walked. We alluded to John 14 and verse 6 earlier. That's what Jesus was doing. He was not being inclusive in the way of salvation. He was really being exclusive. Everyone is included in the ability and the offering of salvation. But that offering of salvation is specific and therefore exclusive. That's why Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way. And the way is only shown through the truth. And the truth is the only thing that brings about the life. There's one. It's exclusive. Just as. And he goes on to say, no one comes to the Father except through me. We've got to understand that our obligation is to walk just as a specific standard. Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 2 explains that the standard of God's word, therefore, cannot be altered. In Deuteronomy 4 and verse 2, Moses records that 
You shall not add to the word which I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God which I commanded you. And so, in other words, to alter that specific standard is to therefore alter the outcome. You can't alter a proven theory and then expect to get the exact same outcome of that original theory. When you alter the principles of a theory, it's no longer the same theory. It's a different theory. And so to alter the theory of being a servant of God and being right with him by adding to his word or taking away from it changes the theory altogether. And really the theory becomes how to be wrong before God, how to be in sin. We've got to understand that clearly, brethren, that if we're to be pleasing to God, the only way to do it is how he said to do it. We cannot add to or take away from the words or else we alter the theory and therefore we alter the outcome as we practice that theory. Take, for example, in Leviticus chapter 10, the priests, sons of Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, they each took a censer and put fire in it and put incense on it and offered profane, that is common or unholy fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. Therefore, they added two because he had not commanded them. And the writer continues with the consequence. So fire went out from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. And Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord spoke, saying, By those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy. And before all the people, I must be glorified. So Aaron held his peace. And so here is this theory of serving God under the Old Testament. God required a specific fire, which was to the exclusion of all other fire. But when they offered the fire, which the Lord had not commanded them, they changed the theory. And therefore, instead of being right with God, the outcome was changed because they followed a theory that was intended to bring a person under condemnation. They changed the word of God. He must be regarded as holy. You know, the great man of faith, Moses, made a similar mistake in Numbers 20 and verse 7 the Lord spoke to Moses saying, take the rod and you and your brother Aaron gather the congregation together and speak to the rock before their eyes and it will yield its water. Thus you shall bring water for them out of the rock and give the drink to the congregation and their animals. So Moses took the rod from before the Lord as he commanded him. He did a little bit as he commanded him, but notice verse 10. Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock and he said to them, here now you rebels, must we bring water for you out of this rock? Then Moses lifted his hand and struck the rock twice with his rod. And water came out abundantly, and the congregation and their animals drank. Notice the outcome, though. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe me to hallow me in the eyes of the children of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. Moses never made it to that physical promised land. And it was because of this ill-advised decision right here. Did you notice what God commanded in verse 8? He said, speak to the rock. And so here's this theory. What does God want me to do to be pleasing to him? Well, well, Moses saw the principles, and certainly he understood it. You speak to the rock. But then apparently in a, in a time of frustration, Moses changed the theory, struck the rock, and therefore received a different outcome. And he was punished. You see, he who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. In John chapter 15, a passage that we alluded to in our earlier sermon, 
Jesus said this, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. We understand that to abide in Christ, one ought to bear fruit. But we also understand the nature of actual literal fruit bearing. That is, a tree bears fruit. We understand that the type of tree determines what the type of fruit is that it will bear. And so Jesus demands that his disciples who abide in him, they ought to bear fruit. That's a necessity. That's an obligation. We have no choice. But we ought to bear fruit just as the vine. Consider in Matthew 7 and verse 15, when Jesus warms of false prophets in a period of confusion and, and wondering how, how they're going to know the difference, who's a false prophet and who's not, Jesus gives them a standard. Jesus gives them a way of telling. He says in verse 15 of Matthew 7, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. And he explains, Do men rather gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear good fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Or a, a good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits you will know them. This illustrates a very fundamental and easy principle to understand about the theory of abiding in Christ. We must bear fruit, but if we do not bear fruit just as he is, same fruit that comes from that vine, the fruit of the Spirit, act as Christ acts, we've got to bear the fruit just as the vine then we're not of that vine if we don't. And so the theory continues. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. But notice the last part of this theory. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. What this phrase he walked does is it identifies the standard. You ought, you have an obligation himself, this is a personal obligation. Also to walk, this obligation must be put to action, and it's a present action, just as it's got to be specific. It's narrowed down. It's exclusive. There is an exact one. you got to do it just as. And here's the standard, just as he walked. He is obviously Christ. And just like Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 1, Christ must be imitated in order to abide in him. Paul encouraged the Corinthians, imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. Christ must be imitated. And someone will say, I understand Christ needs to be imitated. I need to walk in his footsteps. And then they may even ask the question that is a very noble question. Well, what would Jesus do in this situation? But then they start to conjecture. They start to, to think through things that the Bible says nothing about. They're trying to find out how he walked without looking to the standard he's given us to show us how he walked. Consider the preceding verses of our text of 1 John 2 and verse 6. In verse 3, this is what the Holy Spirit records. Now by this we know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. you got to know Jesus to walk as he walked. And how do we know him? By keeping his commandments. He furthermore says, he who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. Remember, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. 
Verse 5, but whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. And by this we know that we are in him. He himself ought to walk also just as he walked. Christ is the standard, and we know how he walked based on his word. This is why Jesus said in John chapter 8 and verse 31, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. A disciple was not just the person who was a pupil. A disciple was a pupil of his teacher, but a disciple speaks to a greater thing than just being a student. It speaks to the person who takes that teaching into his life and imitates the teacher. After every manner of his life, you may go to a college class or you may go to a, a seminar for whatever job that you currently possess and they may teach you a lot of things, but you're not going to imitate the person who is teaching you in every manner of their life. But a disciple does just that. And Jesus says, you're my disciples indeed if you abide in my word. You can only imitate him. Walk just as he walked through his word. And he encourages that you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. I don't want us to understand that just as narrows that obligation to a standard and that that standard, just as he walked, being Jesus, is black and white. People talk about gray areas all the time, especially in this postmodern era of relative truth. And some who are in the Lord's church are even guilty of saying things like this. That there are gray areas that we just don't know about. I understand that there are liberties, but even the liberties, they're not areas we just don't know about. They're areas that can be specifically stated as being liberties in God's word. If we don't know their liberties, then we ought not do them until we know it's authorized. The fact is, God has given us everything we need to know, whether by command or direct statement, example that is approved, or necessary implication. He's given us everything we need to know. There's no gray area. If there's ever a gray area, it's because you are gray, not the scripture. And so we're encumbered with this obligation, again, we ought, to study the scriptures, as Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 2 and verse 15. To present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly or accurately handling, dividing the word of truth. There are no gray areas. If we are to walk just as he walked, consider who he is. In the first chapter of 1 John, in verse 5, the word of life declared a message about the Father, and he declared it through his actions and his words. And this is what John said the message was. In 1 John 1 and verse 5, this is the message we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Is there gray there? Who is God? Who is Jesus? Light, no darkness. So if we say that we have fellowship with him or abide in him and we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, no gray areas, as he is in the light, no darkness at all, we have fellowship with one another and with God and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son cleanses us from all sin. There is no gray area. That's why in the second chapter of this same epistle in verse one, he says, my little children, these things are right to you so that you may not sin. There's no option. You don't get to stay in between. You don't get to, to sin that grace may abound like Romans chapter six and verse one says. And, and like the, the Gnostic heretics were doing that John is addressing in first John and second John and third John, you can't just blame things on a sinful nature because the Bible doesn't say we have a sinful nature. Your obligation is to walk just as Christ walked. 
That means no sin, no darkness at all. And he's not suggesting that there will never be a time of of weakness where we do deviate from the standard. But what he doesn't do is beat around the bush and he makes sure that the brethren know that to sin is to be in darkness. To deviate from the standard is to sin. 1 John 3, 4, whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness and sin is lawlessness. If we're to walk just as he walked, that means we don't sin because in him was no sin at all. In him is light and no darkness at all. So if we deviate from the standard, we're in darkness and we're in sin. But what we've got to do is get back to that standard. We've got to get back to fulfilling that obligation. And thanks be to God, he's given us the ability to. In chapter 2 of 1 John, in verse 1, he says, I write these things to you that you may not sin, but if anyone sins, he's not excusing sin. He's not saying it's okay. He's saying don't sin, but if anyone sins... We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins, not for ours only, but also for the whole world. And for those who have already obeyed the gospel by being baptized into Christ for the remission of their sins, he gives instruction to them if they fall short again. In chapter 1 and verse 8, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So don't suggest that you've sinned, but this sin is not affecting you in some way. Verse 10, he says, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. And so don't deny that what the Bible is saying is true. If the Bible says you're in sin and what you're doing specifically is sin, don't say, no, I've not sinned because you're making Christ a liar. Instead, own up to it. And that's what he says in verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You see, God has given us the provision In verse 14 of chapter 5 of 1 John, he says, This is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us, and we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we have the petitions that we have asked of him. Verse 16, If anyone sees his brother sinning a sin which does not lead to death, that is a sin that's not repented of, that's not confessed, that's not turned away from, he will ask and he will give him life for those who commit sin not leading to death. There is sin leading to death. That's that unrepented sin. I do not say that he should pray about that. All unrighteousness is sin and there is sin not leading to death. In other words, if we repent of our sins, confess them to God, ask forgiveness and get back on that path, that specific obligation, just as he walked, then our sins will be washed away according to the propitiation that is in Christ's blood that God provided for us. And we can start walking just as he walked again. Understand that theory must be put into practice for it to mean anything for an individual. Yes, in order to be pleasing to God, we must abide in him. But he who says he abides in him ought himself to walk also just as he walked. It's not enough to know that you must abide in Christ. And it's not enough to know how to abide in Christ. You've got to put the theory into practice in order to bear the results of abiding in Christ and therefore being right with God. It's my prayer that this lesson was of benefit to you. I hope that you've been blessed by the scripture this morning. It's been my effort to hide behind the scripture and allow God to be glorified by the proclamation of his word and not my own. It may be that you're listening in on the Elm Street Church of Christ Facebook page and you're not a member of the Lord's Church. Maybe you've heard some things you've never heard before and you you have some questions. I'd encourage you to send a a private message if you want it to be private to the Elm Street Church of Christ page and I'll be sure to look at that and and answer you back and hopefully answer some of those questions. 
maybe after all of this pandemic stuff is over, you want to study in person. I'd love to do that as the evangelist here at the Church of Christ, which meets at Elm Street. But also you can put comments in the section underneath this particular video. And I'll, I'll give some time to, to studying those things out and, and giving you some answers from God's Word if, if you want those answers and you have those questions. I hope that you continue to have a blessed day, that you continue to pray and grow in the Spirit as we're apart from each other. And until next time, have a, a wonderful time and a blessed day.